Good morning, everyone. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> what a good, what a great church. We just so much love between you know i found throughout the week there's so many of us that need different prayer in different areas and and all of that and it's so cool to just see the love that everybody has for one another no matter where we're at we're at no matter what our struggles are and so uh, am i not up oh, there we go no matter what our struggles are uh, you know so i want to invite you guys uh, everybody uh, on tuesday mornings at 10 we have harvest prayer partners and um so i definitely want to invite everybody to come we pray for each other we pray for the community we pray for the people in our church and if you have anything that you need prayer for certainly reach out to me um and uh let me know because we will certainly be praying uh, let's go jump right in and go to uh, Luke chapter 7. Um, and we're in verse 18. A little bit of a longer text today, but uh, very rich and important. We'll get through it. And it's, uh, I think, uh, hopefully will be quite meaningful for some of us. Luke 7, 18. The disciples of John repeat, reported all these things to him. And John, we're talking about John the Baptist. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Reaching by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing behold those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are king's courts what then did you ought to see a prophet yes I tell you and more than a prophet this is he of whom it is written behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you I tell you among those born of women none is greater than John yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, or lament, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating bread and drinking, or eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Our good God, we thank you for this morning that you have given for us to gather with one another and with our holy with your holy church, rather, around the world, which you have set aside to worship you. 
Lord, be present with us this morning as we seek to hear your voice and to be transformed. Show us, Lord, who you are and make our identity to be in you. Make us holy as we receive the scriptures. And God, we ask that your spirit would join with us to reveal the truth of those scriptures which give us knowledge of who you are. We give this time over to you to open our hearts to hear your voice. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. In 2011, I was invited by, by Brad Dacus. You met him last November um, to attend a black tie fundraiser for the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad is the president of the Pacific Justice Institute, and they, they uh, help um, churches and Christians with uh, any kind of legal issues. Um, and Brad had asked me how, uh, to share how Pacific Justice Institute had helped me with an issue that I had with an employer that previous year. Well, Dick Morris happened to be the keynote speaker that night, and I was invited also to attend the more intimate VIP meet and greet party, which was really, I was way out of my element. Uh, if you remember Dick Morris, he was Bill Clinton's campaign advisor and political strategist. Um, and he was apparently responsible for Clinton's moderate policies and notable ability to work well with Republicans. And so during that VIP time, Morris shared a little bit about the development of his political worldview. He said that after his time with President Clinton, he had reevaluated his lifelong affiliation with the Democrat Party, and as he examined each party, each issue after issue, he had a startle, startling revelation, and I will quote him, huh, I'm a Republican. Um, just like people often identify or affiliate with a political party, oftentimes without really understanding what each party stands for or against, many people identify themselves as Christians without really knowing who Jesus is or what God's word teaches. In our text today, Luke is getting back to the purpose of his letter that you may have certainty, and by answering the question, who is Jesus? What we're going to see is that nobody had fully come to grips with who Jesus was yet. And so they began asking questions, including John the baptizer, asking questions. The one who was prophesied would prepare the way for Messiah still had questions. And we're going to see that some were taking an honest look and beginning to understand while others hung on to their social and political identities so tightly that they missed the point and rejected Jesus. Luke 7, verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of the disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? I want to recall, before we move any further, that centurion. Remember verses 1 through 10 a few weeks ago? Um, 
Uh, let me just read the first three verses of Luke 7. It says, After he finished these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come heal his servant. Now look how the centurion sent some people as an expression of faith, right? He trusted and he sent. And yet, John the Baptist in our text today sends two of his, his disciples to see if his faith was warranted. Interesting. Any questions why Jesus said that he hadn't seen so much faith as the centurions? That's huge. The, the greatest prophet to ever live didn't even display that level of faith according to Jesus. Fascinating. Even Jesus' own disciples had not yet come to grips with his full identity yet. In fact, it wasn't until after John had died that Peter made his great confession. Let's go we'll jump a couple of chapters ahead here in, in Luke 9. We'll cover this later, but it says this, verse, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone, and the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. What a great confession, huh? Jesus looked different than what the people were expecting based on how they had put their messianic prophecies together. They, they missed a few items and were expecting some kind of messianic warrior. And, and that remains part of our own eschatology today. We even see John expanding on that in the book of Revelation. John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. Now you remember what eschatology is. It's the study of the end of days. Uh, that's the part of theology that deals with the end times. And in their time, Messiah was supposed to drive out Rome and revive Israel's independence by restoring the throne of David. That was the dominant view. Nobody really questioned that. And that was based on how they inter had interpreted the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. Now, one of the issues that we run against when we're trying to interpret prophecy is that we live in a particular historical context. And back then, the Jews lived in a historical context where Israel was fractured and they had become subjects of the Assyrian and the Babylonian and then the Persian and now the Roman empires. And as much as Rome tried to make them feel like an independent state, they were still occupied by Rome and felt the oppression of that very deeply. Israel hadn't been independent for over 700 years, and they uh, had been divided longer than that. And, it, and at the time, there had been no new prophets for some 400 years, and John shows up, right? So the historical context in which they were living had a tremendous influence on how they understood prophecy. And since his incarnation looked entirely differently than how they had in always expected Messiah to arrive and operate, it was very difficult for them not to see Jesus and his disciples as just kind of some weird cult. That's a warning to us, isn't it? Right? We, we need to be very careful not to dig our heels in too, too deeply regarding our eschatology like they did. 
Our doctrinal statement at IBC acknowledges the differences that exist among true Christians. We do have a particular position, but it acknowledges the differences. We believe there's going to be a rapture, but the doctrinal statement leaves it at that, right? It, 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 it doesn't give us any for much further detail. It also presents a loosely dispensational, premillennial understanding of the end times, right? And if you don't want to know what that means, I wouldn't worry too much about it. It just kind of, let me briefly state, it kind of means that at some point Jesus is going to take the church up, that there will be a seven-year period of tribulation, uh, intense judgment on the earth. There will be a thousand years of peace and righteousness while Satan is bound and Jesus reigns. And at the end of that period, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and those who are redeemed will reign with Jesus forever. And that is extremely simplified, right? But our, our, our statements on those things are very general. And, and we've made it clear that we will not divide over those things because there are Christians that see it a little differently, whether it be the order or how it looks or whatever, right? Um, and we're not going to be divisive over it. What we have simply is our best understanding of what the scriptures teaches. But we need to be humble enough to be corrected if we are wrong about something and if any future prophecy is really susceptible to our misunderstanding because we don't have something to look at that's already happened to line it up with. Because the Jews were so convinced of their eschatology, most of them missed Jesus. Yikes. But why, here's the question, why would John the Baptist have questions? Didn't, didn't he point to Jesus earlier? Look at this in Luke 3. We read this. Luke 3, 15 to 22, it says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. Who, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Heroditus, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked him up in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now another John, we talked about his, uh, uh, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, writes this in his gospel, John 1, starting in verse 25. It says, they asked him, then why are you baptized if you are baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In our text today, there are several possibilities as why the same John here needed to be needed some confirmation as to who Jesus was. Now he's likely a bit confused as to why there's no movement or talk about kicking out Rome, right? Because that's the context he was in. Why Jesus really didn't look so much like the conquering king that they were looking for. We might remember from the first Sunday of Advent that we will never rightly worship conquering King Jesus until we can give honor to suffering servant Jesus because he is both, right? And we do that by serving what Jesus called the least of these in Matthew 25. Those who are hungry and thirsty and prisoned, sick, poor, and otherwise oppressed or, or marginalized people. Because they had emphasized the prophecies that pointed to bringing justice to Israel so heavily. Most of them had missed the suffering servant part. Isaiah 50 verse 6 points to this. Speaking from the servant's point of view, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53, verses 3, 3 and 4 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces and was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And then in verse 7 it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So John may be coming to a new realization about Jesus. R.C. Sprawl asks, Is it possible for a prophet to go through a dark, dark night of the soul, a time of doubt, Consider the prophets of the Old Testament, such as Jeremiah, who was ready to give up his office when he had had enough of the derision heaped upon him by the people. In fact, we find that in Jeremiah 20, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction! For the word of God has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. John's question recalls some of the earlier statements in Luke. We saw uh, John's disciples had asked if he was the Messiah. John told them that someone greater was coming. And then we also saw the demons freak out at Jesus, didn't we? Do you remember that in chapter 4? Uh, that's uh, Luke 4.34. He says, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And we see Jesus point to his own purposes in Luke 5. Starting in verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled as disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now this is super important. As Luke writes his gospel here, he's unfolding the identity of Jesus. So in verse 20, Luke 7, 20, it says, And when men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? Now Jesus' disciples submit to him. They do what he's asked. But Luke adds an important piece here. He adds some context. He lets us know what is taking place as John's disciples come to question him. So look back at verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blinded, he bestowed sight and answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and, the, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus' disciples enter into a context in which Jesus is ministering to people by healing them of disease and illness and plagues and demon possession and giving sight to the blind. And I think giving sight to the blind is one of the key miracles that Luke and the other gospel writers uh, emphasize because of the double meaning there. He's curing a, a physical blindness in a person, but in doing so, he's opening the eyes of, of the witnesses to his identity. And because they had such a narrow view of Messiah, they had been functionally blind to the truth. Jesus' answer to John is no different. He's highlighting this messianic scripture that had been neglected and mis or misunderstood. Uh, Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19, it says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult the Holy One of Israel. Then the eyes, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 35 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall a lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. He is identifying himself as the servant that is in Isaiah. He's saying, yes, I'm the one you're looking for. But he doesn't just say it. He takes what the disciples of John are seeing and witnessing face to face and proving who he is against the scriptures. Any, anyone can claim to be a Messiah, but only Jesus can prove it by what he's doing. Isaiah 61.1, this is interesting, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to the to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Isn't it interesting that the climax of his statement here is that the poor have good news preached to them. The good news 
that we have, that we can share, is bigger than the dead being raised. Eternal life is bigger than someone given a second chance at life. Then Jesus gives John's disciples a beatitude and says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus recognized that there are barriers to belief and pronounces blessedness on those who will move past those barriers. I find it interesting how many people love the idea of Jesus, but then when you expose Jesus for who he is, they get pretty offended. Check this out. Jesus was a person, um, probably similar to the Islamic belief that Jesus was probably a prophet, um, someone who had a very strong connection to uh, God or a higher spiritual being, but a lot of the New Testament, I believe, is probably more so stories giving us guidance on how we should um, perform and fulfill our lives. I think he was a real person. Um, I'm not sure about the Messiah part, but I think at least he was a prophet and he had some very important things to say and uh, regardless of whether he was real or not or just how real he was the lessons that he teaches are extremely important for us to be to be civilized you know that's a whole goal with all of the religions and governments and things like that is to make us all more civilized so we're not killing one another anymore and, and having wars and things like that we need to learn to get along I think that Jesus came to earth in a man, fi man figuring and I do believe in him like but I think that his love only about love he doesn't judge you like because your color or sexuality or whatever you be I just think that Jesus is love I think he's, he was human but I think he was like just like really nice and as she said like really smart and stuff he was Jesus was really nice and really smart and stuff. <laughs> when we can move past our own ideas of Jesus and receive joyfully what the Bible teaches about him, instead of being offended by the truth, it is then that we can be truly blessed by Jesus. Verse 24, Luke 7, 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go down in the wilderness and see? A reed shaking by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are, of, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John's disciples head back to report to John, and Jesus turns his attention to the crowds. And the subject of his explanation to the crowds is that John the Baptist, who is incredibly important to the ministry of Jesus because he closes the chapter on the Old Covenant, and Jesus opens the next chapter, which is the New Covenant. John is well known. It's clear for 
that many, if not most of this crowd that he's speaking to, had gone out in the wilderness to see John at some point. So Jesus asks what they were looking for. The first option is a reed shaken by the wind. It's probably a reference to Herod Antipas, who Jesus later called a fox in Luke. Um, he was someone who kind of, you know, bent whichever way the political wind was blowing like a coward to to appease others. He also was oppressor of the Jews. The second option was a someone dressed in soft clothing. Now let's just be clear that the people didn't go out to the wilderness to see a fashionably dressed yuppie. John the Baptist didn't shop at REI so he could eat bugs and live rugged while looking great at the same time. That's so funny. I don't know what it is about REI. Have you ever been there? I, in New York, RE, they're always in like cities, right? Uh, it was right next to, in Rochester, New York, there was right one, one right next to Costco, and there's like this urban yet outdoorsy crowd that would probably not have survived very long where we lived about two hours away in Amish country. Like, I defy any one of those REI people to hitch up a team and plow 120 acres with horse with a horse and uh, or a couple horses in a thunderstorm or, or or spend 36 hours in a tree with a bow and arrow waiting for a deer with a high temperature of like maybe nine right then that's why I didn't even pretend I didn't even try I'll just watch football um, it's like have fun hunting guys <laughs> I'll pray for you <laughs> I'll be with you in spirit by the fire. I lived, I lived with a whole community of Buffalo Bills fans. And if you know anything about Western New York, they cannot afford a fancy dome out there. These fans are faithful and rugged. You can get free tickets to a Bills game to come shovel the field beforehand. And then you sit in these cold plastic chairs with like a foot and a half of snow in your lap. Like, it's just a dusting. No, no, that is not a, like, the most outdoorsy I got was like driving my lawnmower. I would say it was driving my neighbor's tractor on his farm, but that had air conditioning and Bluetooth. Like, just listening to a podcast with 360 degree views of what would otherwise be the outdoors. John, John was a rugged mountain man. Until you've done the PCT wearing burlap, you are not as rugged as John the Baptist. Even, you're not going to believe, even Wayne Clark is not as rugged as John the Baptist. I'll give him that he tries. He, we were in the desert for our vision and planning meeting last year in a bed in, in a, in a uh, uh, Airbnb and we're in the desert, and it's hot, and he slept outside on a, on a mat. And I'm like, dude, there's beds and air conditioning. But even he's not as tough. Even he's not as rugged as John the Baptist. John wasn't weak and wishy-washy or hypocritical. He, he was tough and honest. Last option that Jesus gave for what people were looking for was a prophet. And in that, he's recalling the spirit-filled words of John's father, Zechariah. Do you remember this in Luke 1? Luke 1, starting in verse 76. And you, O child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. 
And Jesus says he's even more than that. Jesus identifies John the Baptist by evoking the prophetic words, starting in Exodus 23, 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to a place I've prepared. But chiefly to Malachi, according to the prophet Malachi, John is super important um, in the, uh, as a part of the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus goes directly back to that. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Jesus makes a really peculiar statement here in Luke. Verse 28, it says, Luke 7, 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is, great, God is greater than he. Now, keep in mind, John bridged the old and the new covenants, kind of. He, he's the final prophet before the promised Holy Spirit is given to all believers. Uh, he is the capstone of the old covenant, and Jesus is the cornerstone of the new covenant. So why then is the least in God's kingdom greater than John? Well, John is still under the Old Covenant. He, he wouldn't see Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected. They cut his head off first, right? That, that, that doesn't mean that John's going to be less blessed in the end, but Jesus is pointing to the hope of the New Covenant that offers a greater state of blessedness than the Old Covenant, that we have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of what he did on the cross. It looks back at the finished work of Christ. And then we go to a parathetical statement in verse 29, Luke 7, 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Notice the difference. See, under the old covenant, the Jews were God's chosen people. And even though... Gentile believers are grafted in as covenant people under the new covenant, a Gentile could still become ceremonially Jewish under the old covenant. They weren't excluded from conversion. But a Gentile was considered ceremonially unclean. So, on top of having to get circumcised if they were male, something to consider for sure, right? They, they would also need to go through some rites of purification, including a ceremonial bath. And so what appears to be happening here with John is that through his preaching and calls for repentance, many of these circumcised Jews that were considered ceremonially clean are coming to grips with the idea that their ethnic and cultural heritage was not enough to really, truly cleanse them. And they were coming to John to receive a baptism of repentance for sin. The question was, that they would ask us, what makes me better? What makes me cleaner? What makes me more pure than that Gentile sinner? So that humility led them to John's, repent, uh, John's baptism of repentance. In contrast, the Pharisees and many others stood upon their ethnic purity and strict adherence to the law as their, as their moral purity or righteousness. Their righteousness was based on, on who they were and what they did and didn't do. 
That's self-righteousness, which is an opposition to humility. It's a function of pride. They had to... They had not acknowledged their need to be cleansed of sin. Therefore, they did not acknowledge their need of a Savior to save them from sin. And that's why that, that term, Savior or Messiah, for them had to, return to, had, had to refer rather to saving them from Rome. We cannot allow our eschatology to be rooted in escapism. That would mean taking us away from this yucky world. That's not what it's about. God's plan for the eschaton is to finally and fully restore creation to himself, including his people. If we understand correctly, there's a resurrection in which we will be given new bodies. There will be a physical new heaven and new earth. And none of that contrasts with our premillennial view at all. But it, what it does is it clarifies the purposes of God, which are the important part. That he is a redemptive God, and his purposes are redemptive. The problem with seeing the end times as an escape is the same problem that the Pharisees had. Pride. We want out of this mess because we are righteous and we can't stand all the unrighteousness around us. David Garland said the Pharisees seek to justify themselves and reject God's justification of others. And sadly, many of us who are Christians tend to think that way. We, we need to be more like the tax collectors, knowing our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. Knowing that we need to be constantly washed by the blood of Jesus. Moving on to verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. Most of you know my son Nicholas. And those of you who know him know that his energy levels come straight from the heart. I, I have his permission to share this stuff with you. Uh, I asked him, even at five, I still ask. He is the sweetest, most loving kid and he got his good looks from his mother and his mean, stubborn streak from his grandparents. <laughs> when you play with Nicholas, you play his way. You play by his rules. Uh, and and he, he, he has a very strong personality, which will one day serve him very well. But when he was about three, he used to love to engage me in a high-energy game of cops and robbers. And he would set the terms. And most of the time, I don't know why, he wanted to be the bad guy. Right? And then he would, but here's the thing, he would tell me exactly how I was supposed to arrest him. You have to say, put your hands behind your back. Stop resisting. He, he probably watched a little too much cops. <laughs> the, best when, the best is when he was the police officer and I was the bad guy. 
Um, and he was arresting me. He was good. He would throw me to the ground, put his knee in my back, yank my arm around and yell enthusiastically, I'm going to take you to jail. And, I, and then he would cuff me up. And then when I was all cuffed up and restrained and under control, he would shoot me. <laughs> so still the bad guy. As, as, as much... As much as I told him that police officers don't shoot people that are already in handcuffs. That's right, right? Right, Charlie? I'm, okay, I just wanted to make sure. Right? Good police officers don't shoot people that are already in handcuffs. That's how Nicholas played the game, and you didn't play it any differently. Now, in this, in this illustration that Jesus gives... There, there are a couple of ways to see it. The first is that one group of kids wants to choose and control the game, and the other group refuses to join any game. The other is kind of similar. It just kind of points to kids who won't play the game on anyone's terms. They're just going to reject whoever's sent to them. Now, either way, this is pointing to the fact that the generation of people Jesus is speaking of want Messiah on their terms. Or they don't want him at all. Kind of like those interviews. Did you notice this about that? What did Jesus look like? It looked, it looked just like them, right? He looked just like them. They define Jesus by the way they think. Have you ever met people who refuse to go to church and say things like, well, me and God have an understanding. No, you don't. <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't play on your terms. He's God, right? You play his way, or you don't play at all, and that's a pretty hot place to be, so don't play by his rules, right? Jesus isn't going to make deals with petulant children who don't want to play by his rules. John the Baptist came. His ministry was not one of celebration. It was one of repentance for sin. That requires a level of sorrow, right? And the limitations in his life were a reflection of that. He didn't eat that which was fulfilling and pleasurable. He didn't drink wine, which the Bible says makes merry or makes glad the life. Psalm 104, 14 and 15 says, speaking, the psalmist speaking to God says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for men to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And of course, we know the risks of, that are associated with wine or any beverage that contains alcohol. It can be abused, um, and, and some can be addicted to abusing it, and that's extremely dangerous. We have to be careful with that, right? Ephesians 5.18, Paul gives this warning. He says, do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And some people, you know who you are, <laughs> some people can't help themselves, and they should stay away from it. That is contained, this verse though is contained in a part of Ephesians that deals with walking in love. You see, drunkenness is unloving. Being a drunk is unloving. John the Baptist was a teetotaler who refused to enjoy much worldly comfort and did not eat enjoyable foods which can lead to gluttony which none of us have a problem with here but he right now 
And many people back then and today would consider him to be exceptionally righteous, right? He, he, he controlled himself. He limited his freedoms. He didn't exercise very much liberty in his lifestyle. Even still, we tend to make ourselves the standard of righteousness, right? Have you ever noticed how many morbidly obese pastors there are out there preaching the dangers of alcohol and tobacco? Like, I've found that the best sermons are when we have to preach to ourselves. And, buddy, maybe preach about the dangers of double cheeseburgers. I don't, right? With, Hey now, hey now, <laughs> don't throw bacon in there. <laughs> That's a sermon I need to preach to myself more often than the others, I think. But John was super righteous. He didn't leave any room for someone to accuse him of gluttony or drunkenness or greed. And he was too holy for the Pharisees. Think about it. They certainly didn't want him to be the standard of holiness. They, they would have to be even more righteous than they were. Right? In contrast, Jesus enjoyed exercising liberty. Some of us might not want to hear this. He ate good food. And he drank wine. And let's just be honest. I think it's important that we understand that Jesus drank real wine here, or we're going to miss the point. The point here is really important. It wasn't some sort of grape juice. A few people have suggested that. That's, first off, you couldn't even make grape juice back then. The only way to have grape juice was to pick the grape and eat it right away, right? Um, otherwise, it would start fermenting. Now, John did not drink wine, and they said he was demon-possessed. Jesus drank wine and they called him a drunk. Now listen, I used to drink a lot of grape juice when I was a kid. And you know what? I never even got a buzz from it. I, all joking aside, it's just intellectually dishonest to try to make it something that it's not. Okay? If the wine Jesus was drinking did not have the alcohol content to make someone drunk relatively easily, they could not have accused Jesus of being a drunk for drinking what John wouldn't drink. It's just honest. And the reason that it's there is to give us a contrast. It's not about the wine or any of that. Um, and I'm not encouraging anybody to drink, but I'm just saying that he's giving a contrast here. Here's the point. Jesus is saying that both ways are good. Okay? Both ways are good. That's what Jesus is saying, and what did the Pharisees accept? Neither way. John was too holier than thou for them, and Jesus wasn't holy enough for the Pharisees. Imagine saying Jesus, imagine saying Jesus is not holy enough. What? The reason is that they didn't understand holiness. They made it about measuring their behavior particularly measuring it against something or against one another. But real holiness requires humility. The kind of humility that realizes that I am saved by grace alone. That I must repent and live a life of repentance. It isn't a checking off the boxes of what I do and don't do. 
It's not knowing that I have no righteousness of my own. And the righteousness I do have is the righteousness of Christ. And that's why the Pharisees who were not baptized didn't get it. They were working instead of repenting. Philip Ryken said how easy it is to be critical of anything and everything without ever entering into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people are always finding fault. They object to the church as too judgmental or that it's soft on sin or they say this or that congregation is not friendly enough or maybe a little too friendly. They criticize Christians for being too intellectual or too simple, for being too serious or too emotional. They say the same thing about Jesus. He's too strict for them or too permissive. He's too hard to understand or else too unsophisticated. Like the Pharisees, they are always looking for some other savior and always finding some excuse for not believing in Jesus. But the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with them. Do you realize that we can reject the authority of God with our righteousness? That sounds weird, but that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They made themselves the standard of righteousness. And when we insist on doing that, we put people around us in bondage. We have, we have both kinds in this church, right? We have people who are very conservative with their Christian liberty. They exercise very little liberty in their attempts to, to honor God. They usually live by a pretty strict set of rules or, or very strict conduct. That's a good way to live. It is. It's a good way to live. But there are also risks. Risks like pride and self-righteousness and legalism. And then we have others who feel much freedom to exercise their liberties as a Christian. You might see them at the brew pub with a flight of the latest IPAs. Or listening to music that isn't Christian worship or something that we might question. And according to Jesus, that's also a good way. In fact, Jesus was more like that crowd while John was more like the other crowd. I know that may be hard to consider, but, but even at that, there are risks with liberty with living freely, risks like falling into sins of substance abuse, falling into selfishness, becoming ap apathetic about our holiness, licentiousness. In fact, Paul warns, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. See, we need to have guardrails. We need to have limits. But sometimes we need to place tighter limits on our own lives than we should apply to anyone else. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. And that was the problem of the Pharisees. They forgot to love God. They didn't draw near to him and thus realize their sinfulness and need for a savior. But the humble know that they have enough sin in their own lives than to go around nitpicking the lives of the neighbors. He follows too many weird rules. She drinks. They homeschool. Their kids go to public school. Her dress is sh too short. She looks Amish. He smells like smoke, right? 
What about looking inwardly? We're going to go into a time of communion, and I, I want us to examine ourselves. Where do we fall on the spectrum? How do, we, how do we see the Christians around us? Make this a time of repentance. This is about the identity of Jesus and the identity of the Christian. Our identity is not in our behavior, but in Christ. The reason that so many miss Jesus isn't that what they were looking for was wrong. It was that what they were looking for was too narrow. They, overall, they were looking for a conquering king. Guess what? Jesus is a conquering king. He conquered sin at the cross and death at the grave. And he's coming back to conquer all and restore creation to himself. Yes, what they missed was that he's also a suffering servant who suffered in our place. And this is what we remember as we visit our Lord's table. Let's pray. Our holy God, we surrender our pride to you this morning. We often measure ourselves against each other rather than seeing how big you are and how enormous your grace is and falling on our faces because we need so much of it. We pat ourselves on the back and accuse one another when all the while we have made ourselves the standard of righteousness rather than seeing the righteousness of Christ applied to ourselves and our brothers and our sisters. God, we thank you that your kingdom is so big. And we thank you that you love variety and have demonstrated that even within your plan of redemption, as John foreshadowed the Lord Jesus, and yet they are so very different. Forgive us. And teach us to forgive, oh God. Provide for us and cause us to care for one another. Deliver us from the evil one who would seek to distract and to destroy us and cause us, Lord, to be holy. Cause us to be holy before you. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive your sacred feast that is set before us. Jesus has removed from us a debt of sin and called us to follow him. And it is by your unending grace that the blood of Jesus was poured out on that horrible, yet beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy feast in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.